Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, hot off the heels of the majority opposition's rejection of the Conservatives' March 22nd budget, economist Jim Stanford will share his thoughts about the budget and the dynamics of a coming election. James Lorimer will share his concerns about foreign investment in the Canadian book publishing industry, and with nuclear fears threatening in post-earthquake Japan, we will discuss the future of the nuclear industry with researcher and educator Marita Mall. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of March 24, 2011. This edition of Alert Headlines is being recorded on the eve of the federal budget, which all three opposition parties have declared they will reject. While it was no surprise that the Liberals and Bloc Québécois were going to reject the budget, there was some anticipation that Jack Layton, leader of the NDP, might support the budget should the NDP's demands be met. Evidently, he determined that these demands were not met. Canadians will be headed to the polls this spring. A House of Commons committee recommended the Conservative government be found in contempt of Parliament. The Commons Procedure and House Affairs Committee tabled a report concluding that the government is in contempt for refusing to disclose enough information about the cost of several big-ticket items. Those would be documents about the price tags for its law and order agenda, corporate tax cuts, and the plan to buy stealth combat jets, with all the opposition MPs on the committee voting to condemn the government for withholding requested documents. If the House of Commons adopts the report, it would be the first time in the history of the Commonwealth that a government is found in contempt of Parliament. The Harper government has successfully rallied support from opposition parties for Canada's military intervention in Libya. Defence Minister Peter McKay told the House of Commons that intervening along with US and European allies is Canada's moral duty. The House of Commons debated a motion which places a three-month limit on the military action, after which the government would have to come back to the Commons for an extension. The Liberals, NDP and Bloc Québécois supported the deployment of Canadian fighter jets for the mission, but have expressed reservations about what else Canada's role in Libya might involve. Haunted by the experience of the recent Iraq war and continued losses in Afghanistan, Britons told a Reuters poll they were wary of getting dragged into another lengthy foreign conflict at a time of belt tightening at home. Only one in three Britons agree with the decision to take military action in Libya. The poll found that 43% disagreed with the action and 22% were unsure. Just under half of those surveyed felt military action was an unnecessary risk for Britain to take. Former President Jean-Bertrand Aristide made a triumphant homecoming to Haiti on March 18th after seven years of exile. Thousands of enthusiastic followers turned out to greet the former leader, who was still widely revered in impoverished Haiti as a champion of the poor, although viewed by the United States as a divisive figure who could disrupt the ongoing presidential election. Supporters cheered at Port-au-Prince Airport as a smiling Aristide, accompanied by his family and actor and black rights activist Danny Glover, emerged from the charter plane that brought him home from South Africa. He said he had come back to make a small contribution to his country, which is struggling to recover from a devastating 2010 earthquake that killed more than 300,000 people. 
Aristide, who has accused Washington of helping to engineer his 2004 exile, ignored a direct plea from the United States to delay his return to the Caribbean nation until after the presidential election vote set for that day. A new report by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the Wellesley Institute has found that visible minorities earn less and experience higher levels of unemployment than non-visible minorities. The report found visible minority Canadians earn 81.4 cents for every dollar non-visible minority Canadians earn, even in the best economic times. The report also found that visible minorities are overrepresented in industries with precarious low-paid jobs. Japanese authorities are now reporting the death toll from the March 11th earthquake and tsunami is likely to exceed 18,000. This comes as concern is growing that radiation released from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station has contaminated part of Japan's food and water supplies. Contaminated milk and spinach have already been found. Japan's health ministry has urged some residents near the plant to stop drinking tap water after high levels of radioactive iodine were detected. Japanese authorities are still working to prevent a full meltdown at the Fukushima plant. Engineers have restored electricity to three reactors at the crippled plant and hope to test water pumps at the quake-damaged facility soon. But early this week, smoke was seen spewing from two reactors at the plant. In Egypt, voters have approved a referendum on constitutional changes in a move that paves the way for Egypt's first election since the resignation of former President Hosni Mubarak. One of the amendments bars any future president from serving more than two four-year terms. The U.S. Army has issued an apology after the German news magazine Der Spiegel published a series of photographs that appear to show U.S. soldiers posing with the corpse of a civilian in Afghanistan. The photos are graphic and have been compared to the pictures that emerged from the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. In one photograph, a U.S. soldier is seen smiling as he posed with the bloodied and partially naked corpse. The soldiers in the photographs are on trial for forming a secret kill team in Afghanistan that murdered unarmed Afghan civilians at random and collected body parts. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz is reporting Israeli military intelligence has begun collecting information about left-wing organizations abroad that support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. The military intelligence unit is also said to be collecting information about groups that attempt to bring war crimes or other charges against high-ranking Israeli officials. Those were the alert headlines for the week of March 24, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 24, 2011. Former leader of the Manitoba NDP, Howard Pauley, will be launching his book Keep True, A Life in Politics at McNally Robinson in Winnipeg on March 28. Other speakers include Paul Moist, president of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Muriel Smith, who is a cabinet minister for Pauley's NDP, and recent mayoral candidate Judy Wassily-Jalice. The event begins at 7 o'clock p.m. RSVP to Cheryl Mickey at miki at cc.umanitoba.ca. Writer and photographer William Perry will be touring Quebec and Ontario to discuss the significance and symbolism of various forms of resistance art from across the occupied Palestinian territories. Perry is the author of Against the Wall, The Art of Resistance in Palestine. The tour begins in Montreal on March 28th and continues in Ottawa on the 29th. 
then Toronto on the 30th and 31st, then London on April 1st, and Hamilton, Ontario on Saturday, April 2nd. For more details, go to www.cjpme.org. On April 4th, join No One is Illegal Toronto for a People's Assembly on Immigrant Rights, Undocumented and Temporary Work, and the Fight for Status in Canada. Speakers include Ai-Jen Pu, co-chair of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in the United States, David McNally, professor at York University, and Farah Miranda, an immigrant rights and feminist organizer in Toronto. The assembly begins at 6.30 p.m. and will be held at Ryerson University. Former Afghan MP Malale Joya said, No nation can donate liberation to another nation. This is certainly the case for Canada's involvement in the war in Afghanistan, where civilian casualties spiked in 2010 and the rate of killing is increasing each month. The Canadian Peace Alliance has organized a Pan-Canadian Day of Action on April 9th to demand that Canadian troops leave Afghanistan immediately. If you're in Vancouver, meet at the Downtown Public Library at 1 o'clock p.m. In Toronto, meet across from the U.S. Consulate at 360 University Avenue at noon. Join community and labour activists in Toronto on April 9th to protest the aggressive conservatism of Mayor Rob Ford. Since taking office in November, Ford has made clear attacks on public transit, unions, public services and Toronto's environmental plans. Meet at Toronto City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. to tell Mayor Ford, these are our services, this is our city. A conference on niobium mining in Oka will be held at the University of Quebec at Montreal on April 14th. Speakers include Ellen Gabriel, Mohawk from Kanasataki, Alain Deneau, author of Noir Canada, and Simon Dubois of the Oka Citizens of the Oka Citizens Committee. For more information, please go to solidarite-avec-les-autochtones.org. Alternatives and Canadian Dimension Magazine are partners in an international conference on climate justice and ecological alternatives. Cochabamba Plus One features dozens of speakers from around the world, including Pablo Solon, Bolivian ambassador to the United Nations and initiator of the World People's Conference on Climate Change in Cochabamba, Council of Canadians Chair Maud Barlow, and Judy Rebick, founding publisher of Rabble.ca. The conference will take place April 15th to 17th at the University of Quebec at Montreal. For more information and to register, go to canadiandimension.com or alternatives.ca. That's all for Around the Left for the week of March 24th, 2011. With all three opposition parties rejecting Jim Flaherty's March 22nd budget, Canada now appears to be on track for a spring election. Alert spoke with Jim Stanford. He is the economist for the Canadian Automobile Union, media columnist and author of Economics for Everyone. This interview was recorded shortly after the budget declaration and the declarations by all three opposition leaders rejecting that budget. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. Always glad to join Alert Radio. <laughs> okay. Now, um, we recently just heard that um, Jack Layton could not support this budget, but he did place certain conditions on support for the budget. I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, absent uh, any uh, uh, commitment to uh, rejecting the corporate tax cuts, 
uh, do you think it would have been responsible if the conservative government had met all of Jack's uh, conditions? Well, uh, he, he laid out five conditions when he kind of started this process of political bargaining with the Conservatives uh, several weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the five demands that he put to Harper were good ones. I mean, all of them had valid uh, rationale, and all of them would have made an improvement in the lives of, uh, of Canadians. The biggest one, in my view, was the uh, proposal for expanding the Canada Pension Plan. It's interesting to recall the Canada Pension Plan was in, implemented in the first place in a minority government situation. So to actually win a significant increase, uh, expansion of the CPP, that would have been a big, uh, a big deal, one that would have delivered, uh, I think, lots of, benefits, uh, lots of benefits down the road. Now, in any uh, minority situation where you're in you know, compromised negotiations, you're going to have to hold your nose about a lot of things. And the corporate tax cuts that Harper has in place, uh, those will cost $6 billion a year. The failure to extend employment insurance benefits for unemployed Canadians, he's cut them all off now. Uh, the temporary extension that he put in place during the recession has now expired this month. Uh, the cutback in money for um, municipal and regional infrastructure projects, all of those things are terrible. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, you have to say, you know, well, if I can win something, is that better than winning nothing? I think that's what Leighton was trying to do, but uh, clearly the Tories were not even into that. So they've just uh, handed down a couple crumbs, and uh, uh, Mr. Leighton, I think quite correctly, has uh, has refused to go there. So it looks like we're headed for an election. So do you, you feel that it would have been uh, responsible had there been no tax cut to uh, if the, the Conservatives uh, maintaining that line on corporate tax cuts, uh, I mean, the Liberals rejected it completely, uh, ha- but uh, the NDP, you could have seen them possibly supporting a, a, a Conservative budget with uh, those tax cuts. You mean if there was enough other good stuff in yeah. it? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, uh, the Liberals have made, you know, this the big line in the sand. Oh, that's a tremendous irony. It's the Liberals who cut the corporate tax rate from 29% to, I think it was 21% when they left office and who in general have supported corporate tax cuts. So that's all political opportunism on the Liberals' part as well. In any kind of negotiating, whether it's a minority government or a, a labor management situation, you never get everything that you're, you ask for and you aim for as much as you can get and then you judge at the end of the day whether it's worth it or not. I wouldn't have made the corporate tax cut thing per se the uh, you know do, do or die issue. Uh, I hate them, and, and they're a terrible waste of money. But uh, if you could win an extension of the Canada Pension Plan and some other long-run benefits instead, that would be something to speak about. That point's all moot now, though, Michael. Uh, yes. There was nothing in this budget, so uh, I, I don't really see the the value in, uh, you know, kind of second-guessing a hypothetical situation. We, we're dealing with co- uh, the Conservatives who are dead set on their agenda. Uh, they kind of went Jim through Stanford. the motions. The uh, the Conservatives are generally lauded, uh, e- even apparently, certainly by a lot of media punditry, as uh, competent managers of the economy uh, throughout the media and the general public. And I'm wondering, as a professional economist, what is your assessment of the Harper government's economic policies? Yeah, I think it's an incredible irony that they wrap themselves up in this uh, mantle of uh, good economic managers or prudent fiscal managers. Uh, that's a bunch of nonsense. They, they of course, oversaw the economy when the uh, global financial crisis washed over us, uh, experienced the worst recession since the 1930s, um, have uh, experienced tremendous dislocation that carries on to this day. Uh, they've been patting themselves on the back, saying that we're in recovery, but uh, they're still, uh, if, you, if you take a true measure, there's still over 2 million Canadians unemployed. Household debt levels are at record uh, record peaks, and uh, and then the, now there's an all-out attack on public service uh, delivery, especially at the municipal and the provincial 
level. So times have been very, very tough, and I have a hard time imagining why they want to claim credit for that. Their mm-hmm. fallback is always, well, we've done better than other countries at managing this crisis that wasn't our fault anyways. But even that line is, uh, is wearing pretty thin. Uh, lots of countries uh, in Europe uh, are recovering better in terms of their job markets than Canada's is. Even the U.S. economy is growing faster than Canada's uh, right now. So all of this uh, back padding that, that Canada survived the recession better than anyone else is empirically wrong, and uh, I think it's starting to ring, ring hollow. Canadians at the, at the bottom of our society, at the grassroots level of our society, know that things are tough. And uh, all kinds of self-congratulation by politicians isn't going to change how they feel when the election comes. Jim, do you see anything exceptional, historically, or unique about the Harper government and the, the uh, their approach and their policies? I, I believe the Harper government is uh, is without a doubt the the most uh, right-wing, pro-business, and, and in some ways dangerous government that uh, Canada's had at the federal level ever. And uh, it was terrible when, you know, the machinations of minority politics back in 2005-2006 allowed them to get a foothold in government. Harper's been very skillful and manipulative at using that foothold over the last five years to try and consolidate his power. Um, And uh, if he ever gets a majority, uh, you know, watch out. He is absolutely going to try and remake Canadian society in a a hard-nosed neoliberal way. Jim, tell me something. I mean, if the polls are correct, I mean, they they seem to suggest that uh, the values of of most Canadians are are very much at odds with the things that uh, you're suggesting about Stephen Harper. So why is it that he keeps getting elected? Mm -hmm. Well, he keeps getting elected with a a very narrow minority. You know, he seems to hover in that 30 to 35 percent range, and uh, hopefully he doesn't go above that in this election. Um, he, he, uh, you know, why does he keep getting elected? I'm not sure what Canadian values are. I mean, we often like to pat ourselves on the back about being kinder, gentler, sharing people. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of very right-wing, negative, uh, common-sense ideas in Canada and in our political culture that the Tories try to tap into. Uh, They, of course, are supported very energetically by the vast majority of uh, uh, business, including the business-owned media. And that gives them uh, an advantage. Uh, Look at their spending on all these attack ads and everything, where there's no rules limiting how much they can spend as long as an election isn't on. Uh, They're, again, using their money uh, to try and influence politics. I'm hopeful, though, that if, uh, you know, at the individual level and the collective level, we keep speaking out for what what we think are, are, are better values and organize to protect ourselves and defend our social programs and our jobs, that we can push back uh, against Harper and everything that he stands for. Well, with with an election uh, which appears to be underway, could you maybe sound off on on what you see as the key factors dictating election outcomes in the modern era, and, and how can reformers realistically shift electoral outcomes in a more progressive direction? Oh, wow. If I knew a good answer to that one, Michael, I'd be a political genius <laughs> instead of a mere uh, economist as I am. That That's the challenge that we have to undertake. And uh, on the left uh, in Canada, we've got to get much better at uh, connecting with Canadians, uh, speaking in ways that they can understand and relate to, at identifying issues that, that they think are reasonable rather than sort of pie-in-the-sky utopian stuff. Uh, but at the same time, giving people hope and vision uh, that the world can be changed uh, for the better. Those are all the things we need to do, whether we're in a, you know, an environmental group or a trade union or a, a, a political movement. And, uh, you know, I, again, I, I'm hopeful that, that uh, we've survived five years of Harper. I would love, love 
to see them uh, kicked out of office in this election, uh, replaced by, you know, even something very imperfect like a, a liberal NDP minority situation or something like that. It would be a huge victory if we can roll back Harper, given how close he has come to getting uh, a majority government. Well, Jim Stanford, I, I want to thank you for your uh, perspectives on this uh, very historic occasion, and uh, we look forward to your commentary in the not-too-distant future. So thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Thank you, Michael, and your whole team for what you do with your radio station. It's great stuff. Okay, thanks a lot. And that was Jim Stanford. Uh, he is an economist for the Canadian Automobile Union and a media columnist and author of Economics for Everyone. Heritage Minister James Moore has commissioned a review of Canada's ban on foreign investment in the book industry. While he has not at this time announced the results of the review, a debate about the ban is beginning to percolate. To get his views on the subject, Alert has contacted James Lorimer, founder of James Lorimer & Company, one of the few remaining sizable independent publishers other than the university presses. Welcome to Alert Radio. Thank you. Uh, what would happen to your publishing company, do you think, if the ban on foreign investment in the industry was lifted? Well, the companies that exist and that are in reasonably good uh, shape aren't going to be affected directly. So, you know, it, it doesn't make any difference. In fact, um, in my particular case, um, my contracts with my authors uh, all say that um, that they they become null and void if the company were to be purchased by a foreign purchaser. So that's pretty good insurance against my own company being taken over by uh, by foreign buyers. The, the the main uh, the main effect that it would have though is to create a situation where where owners of publishing companies that have been subsidized by the government and supported for cultural reasons for all these years would be in a position to trade their you know their 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 publishing company uh, to to they could sell their publishing company to to an American firm that wanted to buy the company and end up probably with quite a handsome payoff. Uh, but the net effect would be the loss of an independent publishing house and its replacement by you know by a branch plant of a of an American operation. So. so do you think that if if more independent publishers were to disappear or to be taken over by foreign companies, um, is it your fear that fewer Canadian authors would be published? Oh, for sure. I mean, we can see that very clearly. Every time a Canadian publisher goes out of business, there's an, there's capacity that's lost. There's ability to publish books uh, that's lost. So the most recent company that's gone out of business, um, Key Porter, which was founded by Anna Porter, uh, I guess about 20 years ago in Toronto, and you know was taken over by by another Canadian publishing company, Fenn. I mean, they were publishing 20 or 25 books, new Canadian authored books a year, and now that they're out of business, uh, those books won't be published. If the company had been bought by foreign owners, they'd have very little interest in carrying on uh, with a lot of the books that were that were published by that company. The foreign-owned publishers do publish Canadian authors, but they're very selective and picky. Uh, they do a certain kind of kind of best-selling book, uh, but they don't do the breadth and depth of books that Canadian independent Canadian publishers have been doing all these years. So it would make a huge difference if those independent publishers, you know, either went out of business or were taken over by American companies. 
What's been the impact on independent publishers of the rapid disappearance of independent bookstores who have been unable to compete with the likes of, say, Chapters Indigo? Yeah, I mean, it's had it, the, the, the statistics on that are really clear. Every time, and it's definitely the experience of my company and, you know, and, and other companies too, when an independent bookstore that could sell 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 copies of a new Canadian book uh, uh, goes out of business, those sales just go away. It's not that, this, that people go to chapters and buy them at chapters instead. It's that the, the sales that used to happen in that independent bookstore just don't happen anymore. So typically books that would have sold five or 10,000 copies 10 years ago are now selling two or 3,000 copies. And, and the difference is that independent bookstores that, that used to put those books in front of interested buyers just don't exist. And the buyers are still there, but the encounter between the book and the, and the buyer just doesn't happen. The big box phenomenon, you know, when you go into a big box store, it's not bringing your attention to interesting books. It's just putting a, you know, a huge quantity of books in front of you and leaving it up to you to stumble across you know, the books that you might, and generally speaking, people don't. So sales have of independently published Canadian books have been very negatively affected by the, by the disappearance of independent bookstores. Some critics of the ban say that independent publishing houses don't have the capital to properly promote their books, especially outside of Canada, which is why some of the most recognizable names in Canadian fiction and nonfiction uh, have been choosing to go with Canadian branches of multinational companies like Random House or Penguin. Do you have any comment on that? Well, the, it's actually kind of the opposite of what you're saying. That It's typically the independent Canadian publishers are the ones who you know, work with a wide range of authors and are almost always the first publishers of authors who go on to be very successful. But what happens is that, uh, and, and, and independent Canadian publishers are hugely successful at exporting Canadian authored books around the world. I go myself to the Frankfurt Book Fair and the London Book Fair every year. Uh, I, it, my colleagues, many of my colleagues go to many other book fairs and those are the places where books are sold internationally. There's a tremendously strong Canadian presence internationally, and that means that all kinds of Canadian-authored books are being sold. You know, it's not just the big bestsellers that you hear a lot about that are, that are seeing, you know, they're being translated and published in foreign languages, but there's, again, there's breadth and depth in the kinds of books that are, that are reaching foreign readers. What is the process? That, that, what does happen, though, is that the branch plants swoop in uh, on the most successful authors, and spend amounts of money that are unreasonable in terms of the expectation of that author's sale in in advances and basically kind of it's like a blocking move they buy the most successful authors from to, from the independent publishers spend more money than any rational person would spend buying those authors in order i would say in order to give themselves profile and presence in the canadian market and at the same time to deprive their competitors of potentially profitable projects. So what? So, and that process has been going on for quite a long time, and it has weakened the Canadian sector, no doubt about it. Well, what do you think is the special contribution that independent publishers make that would be lost if the Canadian industry were to be entirely foreign-owned? What kind of policies or changes do you think are needed to help them survive and prosper? Well, there actually are uh, policies in place, both in Ottawa and and in many provinces, that do mean that 
that they're you know they're the the the, the association of independent Canadian publishers in English has more than a hundred members. There are publishers in you know pretty well every Canadian city, every Canadian province. There's a very strong independent publishing industry across the country, and it is supported federally by you know by heritage programs, by the ownership programs that that you've mentioned, uh, and by the Canada Council and then provincially. So. You know that the, the, even though book sales are, you know, the, the 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 decline of the independence has meant that book sales are of of titles are are down on a per title basis. Canadian independent publishers are publishing a really astonishingly wide range of interesting and important books all across the country. So the, the, it isn't as if the you know, and actually I'm very involved with um, with an industry initiative where we're moving aggressively into e-books. And making not just the bestsellers available as ebooks, but looking to make uh, all new Canadian books available as ebooks as well as print books. So there's an awful lot of activity and energy in the independent publishing sector. The bad news in Ottawa is that instead of looking to support those kinds of, you know, instead of instead of looking to give even more support to these initiatives and to permit the sector to 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 be strong and to grow and to be profitable. Um, Ottawa, the, the, the federal Tories have got an ideological agenda. They don't like controls on foreign investment. They don't like the fact that Americans complain that they can't take over Canadian book publishers if they want. They, Americans don't like Canadian cultural policies. And the Tories, you know, are the, the, their, their preference is if they can do it, you know, by stealth without anybody noticing, is to make these things slowly but surely go away. So they've done it, you know, they did it in the, in the cell phone business, uh, some months ago, you know, they'll do they they do it by slowly, incrementally, you know, uh, one step at a time. But that's definitely their agenda. And I mean, it's good for the foreign companies that want to have more of the Canadian market. Uh, and it it would be good for a publisher who sold his publishing company for, you know, handsome for a handsome reward. But it's bad for writers and it's bad for readers. Well, that's about all the time that we have for today. But thanks for speaking with us. And uh, we really appreciate your insights on this subject. Good to talk so to you. We will continue to watch this story as it develops. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Alert has been speaking with James Lormer, the founder of James Lormer & Company, on foreign investment in Canadian book publishing. After decades in the doldrums following Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, in recent years the nuclear energy industry was beginning to enjoy a resurgence, especially in Asia, where many new plants are in construction or on the drawing board, and in Europe and North America, where there are plans to replace aging power plants. What impact will Japan's radioactive nightmare have on this resurgence? Alert has contacted Marita Mall, an Ottawa-based researcher familiar with the nuclear energy industry. Marita Mall is a researcher and educator on issues of technology, energy, telecommunication, and education. So welcome to Alert, Marita. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Okay. Um, in a lead article in the n March 19th issue of the Globe and Mail newspaper, Doug Saunders uh, says that Abandoning nuclear energy makes no sense, especially for countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, where energy requirements are growing very rapidly as these countries industrialize. Um, coal is the only other energy option, and uh, it is the most carbon-dense of fossil fuels. 
causing concerns about damaging the atmosphere and human life. Um, this view is echoed by the likes of George Monbiot and Jim, James Hampson, and I was wondering, um, what are your what is your take on the nuclear energy as a, a replacement or alternative? Well, you know, nuclear is a is a is a, is a very terrible box we put ourselves into. You know, since we since we chose as a society, I guess, to adopt this technology, and those areas that have adopt, adopted it on a large scale, like Ontario, for example, where I live, um, Japan, obviously, um, would have a great deal of difficulty getting out of it very quickly. Um, what is the effect of this, you know, uh, is, it, is, is, is this crisis in Japan, uh, as you asked in your intro, how is that going to affect the so-called nuclear renaissance? Um, well, the nuclear renaissance really is so-called. Um, it's mostly a name only. There haven't been any, you know, there hasn't been very much build around it yet. Um, if we can believe the reports uh, coming out of Europe, uh, they, um, you know, they're slowing down at least for a small period of time. Uh, in in Ontario, um, there's no slowdown going on as far as we can tell. The hearings on um, environmental assessment for new Darlington reactors started today. Um, so what effect is it going to have? Uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to say mm -hmm. that it's really going to slow anything down on a large scale. Once everything dies down, uh, I wonder whether it is going to, going to slow um, nuclear nuclear power mm -hmm. down. Uh, I'm on the record as being against nuclear power, but, you know, that mm. it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a simple question and it's not as black and white as that. Um, well, uh, do you, so do you see anything ha uh, changes uh, internationally uh, in China, for instance? <clears throat> well, China has, has said they're, you know, they're, they're, they're taking a few minutes to look, or a few <laughs> minutes probably, you know, just uh, metaphorically yeah. speaking, uh, to look at uh, what's happened in Japan, to assess it, uh, to, you know, according to, and, and evaluating it according to their plans. But whether or not it will really slow down um, the proposed nuclear industry in China, um, I don't know. And, and one wonders, uh, what what are the alternatives in China right now? You see, that's that's always the issue, and that's the issue that um, very eminent uh, researchers and scientists have have, have really tackled with um, James Hansen, for example, uh, who isn't a great fan of nuclear energy, but hmm. you know realizes that we can't get out of this all that quickly. Plus, if we do get out of it uh, very quickly the immediate impact is going to be an increase in fossil fuel burning. Well, let, let's talk about that whole issue of alternatives. Uh, last week, Al Jazeera reported that uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has decided not to extend the lives of any of Germany's nuclear reactors. So if we do start shutting down nuclear, uh, global electrical generating capacity will shrink. How can we replace that lost electrical generating capacity without resorting to a... Uh, these uh, fossil fuel uh, atmosphere-threatening uh, options? Well, 
you know, there are, there, there are a number of things on the table that we can use to replace them. Can we get it up and running fast enough is the, is the question. You know, is the political will there to do it? You know, can we get enough? Um, certainly Germany has, has done a lot of work in installing solar and wind power. It's clearly not quite enough. Um, can they do more? Um, different kinds of energy, uh, geothermal energy, can they do more? Can they really get it up and running fast enough? That's the question. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I do, I do see uh, already in, in financial papers here in Canada that, you know, the forecast is that we're going to see a, a growth in tar sands. Um, if anything slows down, the first thing people are going to go after is more, you know, growing, you know, growing the tar sands project, uh, which I think most environmentalists would, would not like to see. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a conundrum. It's a difficult question. Uh, because so far the political will around the soft energies hasn't been there. Uh, we still have fossil fuels we can lean on, and as long as we do lean on them, you know, they're accessible. Well, um, what about uh, other sorts of options, for example, of reducing demand? Is, is that a, a possibility? Well, obviously, yes, we could reduce demand. We could, but to, to what extent... Um, to what extent uh, are people wanting wanting to make the sacrifices that will be needed? Uh, that that that's the question. It's it it the question that occurred to me around um, around the Japanese crisis is why did they risk it? Why did they risk it to to put uh, nuclear power plants in such a seismically active area? Well, it's an economic it's an economic engine and. Uh, even in Japan, uh, to what extent people are going to want to live with uh, rolling blackouts, uh, brownouts, and, and constant loss of power, we'll see, because they're going to have to live with it for a while, because now they're, one of their plants is down, but they still have 54 others. And will they rebuild this? Um, to what extent are people, you know, and, and is industry willing to slow down to accommodate that? It's, um, it's going to be a social decision, and, and I think that... There will have to be a social discussion around that. Uh, the sooner we have it, uh, I think the better off we could be to make these decisions. Marita, when I, uh, as I listen to you, I'm reminded of a, a quote by uh, Dick Cheney that the American way of life is not negotiable. Uh, <laughs> in, in this sort of social resolution, I mean, if we that demand for our, our way of life of, of electricity and, and the power that that is necessary to maintain our way of life, uh, do you see? A questioning of that way of life uh, at all in the cards, or are we uh, locked onto a course of uh, either nuclear or uh, fossil fuel uh, Armageddon? There is an end of the road here. You know, we can't be locked onto fossil fuels forever. If you've read Storms of My Grandchildren or George Bombiot's, you know, any of these works will tell you that we're we're heading down a dead end road. With the fossil fuels, we're doing in irreparable damage, harm to the planet. Um, nuclear is perceived by some of these people as a better option um, with respect to the fact that, according to some people, there's not a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. There is some. Um, but then there's the, the huge amount of nuclear waste that has to be dealt with after. So... <sighs> The, 
The response to this is the potential uh, new generation of nuclear reactors called Phase Four reactors, which are fast breeder reactors, and which potentially eat up the waste and can eat up the waste that we currently have. According to Hansen, we've got a thousand years worth of energy just in the waste we've produced so far. Well, if that's true, even I'd have to say, well, let's get rid of it, right? <laughs> let's burn it up for energy. Um, but we we haven't seen any of these breeder reactors. I, I don't know to what extent they exist or anybody's using it. They're certainly not being used commercially uh, in, in the big places. So there are some potential solutions out there, but they're, they're technologies of the future in some cases, which, you know, um, one shouldn't always put one's faith in. Well, um, Marita, I think we'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us. And, well, it's uh, a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking. Thank you very much, Marita. Bye-bye. And that was Marita Mall. She is a researcher and educator on technology and energy issues. Hi, this is Mitch Pollock, and this is Music is a Weapon. And on this week's show, a very special presentation of the music of country Joe McDonald. Back in 1971, in the midst of the Vietnam War, country Joe put out an album called War, 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 which stands up today very, very well when you consider the wars in Libya and Afghanistan and Iran and all the little adventures that NATO is going on. So... Today, five songs, five uninterrupted songs, really interesting songs, and please enjoy them. Here to start is Country Joe McDonald with The Munitions Maker. Thunder 
hinders destruction from its gorge. Death's whisper is, I vow more loud. There are no pockets in the shroud. My time is short, my ship's at sea. Already seem like ghosts to me. My millions mock me, I am poor. As any beggar at my door. My vast dominion I resign. of earth to claim as mine brooding with shoulders bitter bowed there are no pockets in the shroud dear God let me purge pure my heart Heaven's hope apart Flinging my fortune's foul increase To fight for pity, love and peace Oh that I could with healing fare And pledge to poverty and prayer Cry high above the cringing crowd Ye fools, be not by mammon cowed There are no pockets in a shroud John tried his grief 
to drown Today James owns one half the town His army contracts switches yield And John will search the potter's field With the heart of leaden bow, poor Alphonse went to war And though it's true he did not know what he was fighting for He grieved because unto Marie he'd been but three weeks wed Tough luck, another three, and he was listed with the dead Marie was free if she were fain another spouse to choose But if she dared to wed again, her pension she would lose And so to mourn she did prefer and widow to remain Like many dames whose husbands were accounted with the slain She was prayed for motherhood with hips and belly broad And should have borne a brawny brood to render thanks to God Or if with valor Alphonse had not fallen in the fray Proud Marie would have been a glad great-grandmother today Yet maybe it is just as well she has not bred her kind The ranks of unemployment swell and flats are hard to find For every year the human race richly we see increase And wonder how they'll find a place Well, that's the curse of peace The gods of war with joy and jubilation Who favor foolish mankind for they prune the population I let us thank the hungry guns for ever belching doom To slaughter bloodily our sons to give us elbow room And the golden dells Ringing and swinging of clamorous bells Praying and saying of wild farewells War, war, war High and low all must go Heart to the shout of war Leaved in the women the harvest yield Gird ye men for the sinister field A saber instead of a scythe to yield War, red war Blast of war, tinker and tailor and millionaire, actor in triumph and priest in prayer, comrades now in the hell out there, sweep to the fire of war. Prince and page, sod and sage, hark to the roar of war. 
Sport professor and circus clown Chimney sweep and pop of the town Into the pot and be melted down Into the pot of war Women all here to call The pitiless call of war Look your last on your dearest ones Brothers and husbands, fathers, sons Swift they go to the ravenous guns The gluttonous guns of war Everywhere thrill the air The maniac bells of war There will be little of sleeping tonight There will be wailing and weeping tonight Death's red sickle is reaping tonight War, 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 war The army of the dead They are coming It's the army of the dead They were coming, they were coming Gaunt and ghastly, sad and slow They were coming All the crimson wrecks of pride Faces seared and cheeks red smeared And haunting eyes of woe And clotted holes the khaki couldn't hide Oh, the clammy brow of anguish The livid foam-flecked lips The reeling ranks of ruin swept along 
The limb that trailed, the hand that failed, the bloody fingertips, and oh, the dreary rhythm of their song. They left us on the felt side, but we felt we couldn't stop. On this our England's crowning festal day, where the men of Magas Fountain were the men of Spion Cup, Colenso were the men who had to pay. Where the men who paid the blood price shall the grave be all our gain? You owe us long and heavy is the score. Then cheer us for our glory now, and cheer us for our pain, and cheer us as you never cheered before. Folks were white and stricken. Each tongue seemed weighted with lead. Each heart was clutched in hollow hand of ice. And every eye was staring at the horror of the dead. The pity of the men who paid the price. They were come, were come to mock us. In the first flush of our peace, through writhing lips, their teeth were all agleam. They were coming in their thousands, or would they never cease? I closed my eyes, and then it was a dream. I closed my eyes, and then it was a dream. Was triumph, triumph, triumph down the scarlet gleaming street. The town was mad. A man was like a boy. A thousand flags were flaming where the sky and city meet. A thousand bells were thundering the joy. There was music, mirth, and sunshine, but some eyes shone with regret. And while we stun with cheers our homing braves, oh God, in Thy great mercy, let us never more forget the graves they left behind, the bitter graves. Graves they left behind the bitter graves. That was Country Joe McDonald from his 1971 famous album, War, War, War. That was five of the, of the nine songs, March of the Dead, The Call, War Widow, The Twins, and The Munition Maker. That's it for this week, folks. Take care. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. 
To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also broadcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.